back about four years ago, I began one Sunday morning sermon like this. Let me try to talk us out of being too committed to global missions. If we're too committed to global missions, some of our key people will leave us for faraway lands. There'll be great financial costs to those of us who stay and send them. Those who go will likely be persecuted or threatened in ways in which they wouldn't if they had stayed in the U.S. So we should instead just focus on the gospel spreading in Albuquerque. After all, there are plenty of non-Christians here. There are easy opportunities for us here. It costs us nothing extra to stay and keep our jobs and to work and look for opportunities to proclaim the gospel in our own backyards. We can do more with less if we aren't too committed to the nations. Well, I went on to say that there are several problems with this. For starters, it's not God's plan. God's plan is not just for more numbers to be saved, but God has a geographic aim in, in the mission of the gospel. It's not just a multitude for which Christ died, but in heaven one day there'll be a multitude from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. In other words, every people group or every culture will be represented in God's heaven. That's his plan. That was a plan that was hinted at and promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. You have Psalms like Psalm 67 saying, Let the nations be glad. Let the peoples praise you, O God. You have promises like Habakkuk 2.14 that one day God's glory will cover the earth like now the waters cover the sea. In other words, completely. One day that will happen. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to bring in a global glory, a global praise. That's why he went not just to the Jews, but also to the sinners, to the Gentiles. And he commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how each of the four gospel accounts ends, with Jesus giving this command to his followers to make more followers of him for God's praise, for God's glory, for their salvation and good. That's what the book of Acts records for us. It's called Acts of the Apostles, if you look at the front page of the book of Acts because it's what the apostles did after Jesus ascended on high to heaven. Some have argued that it could be called, or better called, God's acts through the apostles. Because you see God working in, in wonderful and powerful ways. Turn with me to Acts 13, if you have a Bible with you this morning. Acts chapter 13. There we see the first missionary journey. Before Acts 13 in the book of Acts, the gospel was preached, and faith spread, but it did so locally. It did so basically as the disciples stayed. 
Acts 13 is that same plan hitting the road. It's really, in a sense, the first chapter of missions, capital M, missions. Of course, God has always been on mission, the mission of his glory spreading and the gospel going. That, that's, that's always been there all along, but, but here's the first time when people pack up and travel the gospel to a place where the gospel is not yet known. So we'll see in Acts 13, a church worshiping. They commission Paul and Barnabas on a mission. We'll see Paul and Barnabas travel on this mission. We'll see a sermon from Paul as he preaches, and we'll see what that message is, and we'll see how people respond to that message, and uh, we'll see what it means for us today at Desert Springs Church. It starts with a dual commission, we could say. A dual commission. By dual, I mean divine and human. Look at the opening verses of chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, a very diverse group. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. What a great event. It might be more supernatural than most of our experiences and plans as a church. Here you've got prophets and the Holy Spirit speaking, perhaps speaking to the whole church, perhaps in some kind of audible way. It's more supernatural than most of our experiences today, but it's the same God, and it's the same goal, and it's the same mission with the same gospel. The same God who spoke and led in Acts 13 through the Holy Spirit is no less involved in the mission plans of today. God has stirred in the hearts of to go. God has stirred in the hearts of Desert Springs Church to send. And it's much like this in Acts chapter 13. It's a dual commission. God is in it. He's behind it. But not just supporting it, he's leading the way. He's initiating. It's his mission, not our mission with his help. It's his mission. God is on mission, and he simply invites us to be a part of the mission of his glory spreading in the world, which he's been committed to from eternity's past. It's his mission, and yet the church is intimately involved. The church sent them off. No doubt this implies blessing. No doubt it implies ongoing prayer. No doubt it, in, it implies financial help. It means ongoing care and partnership. Paul loves that word partnership or fellowship. 
especially in the book of Philippians. He's thankful to the church in Philippi because of their partnership in the gospel. You see, Romans 10 says people can't believe and be saved unless someone preaches to them. And and someone won't preach to them unless they go. And how will they go unless they are, what? Sent. Third John tells us, That the sending and the going is all part of the mission. So those who send them on their way in a manner worthy of God share in the very same mission. It'll be ongoing. It'll be full of financial sacrifice and support, ongoing prayer and encouragement. But it starts with a commission. A little later in our service, we'll do this very thing as a church. We will lay hands on and send them on their way, acknowledging what we think God is already doing. God is sending them on their way. It's a dual commission. Then secondly, we see a complex mission. A complex mission. Well, The basics of the mission are very clear. It's the word spreading. That is very clear. That's the plan. We know that. The mission is very clear in that sense. But many things about the mission here in Acts 13 were complex. They were unclear. They were unanticipated, perhaps, or unknown. So here in this passage, where Paul and Barnabas go isn't specified. Look at verse 4 again. The Holy Spirit sent them out... And then it just says, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived, verse 5, at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. You'll see it again in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. There's a lot of coming and going, different cities. There'll be all kinds of cities, maybe four or five that stretch from Acts 13 to Acts 14. Sometimes in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit says, go there. And sometimes the Holy Spirit doesn't say. So how did we come to to choose North Africa as a a people and place that we would adopt and we we would send a missionary couple? Well, there are many details, many things go into it. It's complicated. And yet, God's in it. He's in it. Notice, as they go along the way, there are unusual, maybe unexpected, impossible, it seems, opportunities for the gospel. Just look down in your Bibles at verses 6 through 12 there. Here's a scene, this first place they go to. You've got, you've got this guy, a, a magician, a Jewish false prophet, we're told in verse 6. And he doesn't like Paul. He doesn't like Barnabas. He doesn't like their Jesus or their message. And so he goes to the proconsul of the town, maybe the mayor or something like that, and, and he opposes them. He, he badmouths them to the mayor. The apostle Paul then brings a curse from God upon him, and for a time he will be blind. He'll be blind for his opposition and troublemaking. But that leads to the proconsul hearing the gospel and eventually believing. Look at verse 7. 
this magician, this Jewish false prophet, was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And then you get to the end of the story after this man is struck blind. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You see, the miraculous blinding of this this troublemaker both confirmed what the apostles were saying and yet also the word itself is the thing that changes this man and gives him faith and, and that's the thing that powerfully works in him to give salvation. But who would think that you would go into a city, find some magician who's going to cause trouble for you and badmouth you and misrepresent you to the town mayor. But don't worry, this mayor will, will want a hearing with you. He'll want to hear what your message is. And then after you strike this magician blind, he hears the word again and believes. You couldn't plan such a thing, could you? But God's in it. It's a complex mission. They're looking for open doors for the word, as Paul talks about in Colossians 4. Here's an open door for the word that they could not have opened, but God is orchestrating events in this complex mission for the gospel spreading in unforeseen and unique ways. But there are also unforeseen difficulties with the mission. There are unforeseen difficulties. Look at the second half of verse 13. It just says, And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This would seem like nothing special, maybe not important at all, if we didn't have this comment in Acts 15. Would you turn over there? Acts 15 tells us a little bit more about what was going on in Acts 13 when John, who's also Mark, who wrote the gospel according to Mark, what happened when he left there in Acts 13? Well, Acts 15, verse 37 says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them the next missionary journey. John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed. There's a parting of the way between Paul and Barnabas over this guy, Mark, because he left them in Pamphylia and went back home. And we don't know why he went back home, but you certainly get the feeling that it has something to do with a weakness or cowardice or embracing comfort or, or being homesick or, or, or fearing persecution or something. It's enough for the Apostle Paul to say, no, 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 he doesn't get a second chance. No, no, no. He's disqualified from the next trip. It's too much of a risk. He'll he'll wimp out again. Some of your best men will fail you. The mission is complex, but it is clear. It is clear in its fundamentals, isn't it? It's clear and complex for us here as we stay, isn't it? It's clear what we should do, and yet, 
we pray for God to open doors. And sometimes it'll be a door slammed in our face and there's no opportunity for the gospel right then and, and yet somehow things will just get turned upside down and all of a sudden you have the ear of the mayor and he comes to faith. God is in it. Thirdly, in this passage, back to Acts 13, we see a centered message a centered message. I don't know what else to call it. What I mean by centered is that Jesus is the center of a sermon that Paul preaches here. Verses 16 to 41 are a sermon that Luke records by Paul. Uh, really, it's a summary of Paul's sermon, no doubt. It wasn't probably this, this long, uh, probably longer. But, but it's the first of a few different sermons that Luke will summarize for us and put in his, in his record of the book of Acts. One thing to note up front about this sermon that we're going to look at is that it's preached in a Jewish synagogue. It's to Jews and Gentile converts to Judaism. These are people who know the backstory of Jesus already. The backstory being the Old Testament. The Bible is really a grand story, not just a bunch of little vignettes or stories. It's a grand story, and what came before with Jesus is significant. And so Paul often, when he preaches to Jews, takes advantage of that and, and walks them through their Bible, showing the anticipation of Christ and then showing Christ as the fulfillment of, of God's plan. That's what I mean by a centered message. In Acts chapter 17, though, Paul preaches to Gentiles, to Greeks, to outright pagans. They don't know the Old Testament. There he begins with, well, their idolatry and that that they're worshipers of of some kind. You know, they worship things and, and gods and And so Paul moves from that into there is one creator God. And from that he whittles it down to one who is sovereign over all and and, and one who will one day judge in holiness. And eventually he gets to Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. The point being is Paul doesn't approach preaching the same way everywhere he goes, sometimes beginning with the Old Testament to Jews, sometimes beginning with just creation and what they know when preaching to Gentiles. But in each case, he is adamant about getting to Jesus. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the culmination of the message because he's the culmination of history. So with that in mind, knowing that Paul doesn't preach the gospel like this everywhere he goes, let's still look at the way he preaches the gospel here in Acts 13 to these Jews. His point is that all history culminates in Jesus. So verse 17 and following, he begins by recounting God's mercies in the days of Moses and then Joshua. He could have gone all the way back to Abraham or Adam and Eve, but but he finds some point on the timeline and says, all right, let's begin there. Moses and Joshua, God got them out of Egypt and he put them in a land. He blessed them there. He gave them victory over their enemies around them. Then he speaks in verse 20 of God's mercies in the days of judges. And even the last judge, Samuel. 
This is what we've been studying in the book of 1 Samuel. We've been seeing this time in God's plan. Paul talks about God's patience in the days of Saul. Verse 21, they asked for a king. We've been seeing that in recent weeks in the book of 1 Samuel. We've also been seeing that there's this guy Saul, and there's the anticipation of a better king to come, who's David. And that's where, that's where Paul takes it. You see, in verse 22, Paul talks about God's mercy in raising up King David, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. This is language taken from 1 Samuel 13, which we were just in last week in God's providence. And we've been seeing as we study 1 Samuel and its references to king and anointed one and God's reign over his people, we've been seeing that it's, it's not going to be Samuel who's old. It's not going to be Saul who's, who's weak and, and wicked sometimes. God's promises of this anointed one, this ruler from Judah, fall upon this one David, a man after God's own heart. But we've also been seeing that David is not the one with a capital O. But Jesus, the son of David. No surprise then, just as we've been doing on Sunday mornings, as we leapfrog from Saul to David to Jesus, Paul does the same thing. From, from David, he skips a thousand years and takes us right to Jesus. Look at verse 23 of, of his sermon. He said, before his coming, John, I'm sorry, verse 23, I read verse 24. He says, of this man's offspring, that is of David's, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. From there, David and Jesus will be counterparts. He'll contrast and compare Jesus and David for the rest of his sermon and he explains why this is so important. It's not just that uh, God has promises or does work. He, he has you know, a plan that he's slowly getting around to. And, and it runs through good people and bad people and eventually goes to Jesus. He's showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. He's a message of salvation. That's the language of verse 26. He takes him through the prophets in verse 27, 28, and 29. The prophets spoke, and what they said of the one who was to come should have been understood as being fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus by those who were seeing him and around him and hearing him. But they didn't. They didn't believe. Instead, they rejected. And yet, this didn't thwart God's plan. But it was all according to his plan. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Look at verse 27 and following. He said, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. All of this, Paul insists, is the fulfillment of God's plan, and it's good news to those who hear it now today. He says in verse 32, 
We bring you the good news, the gospel literally. The good news of the gospel that was promised to the fathers, it's now been fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Now he gets to the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is this key point. And from here, to prove the resurrection, he will go back to the Old Testament in three different places. The first place he goes is Psalm 2. You see in verse 33, it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That was written by David, and in the first instance, it was about David. It was God saying, David, you're my son. Today I've given birth, in a sense, to you. I've born you as my son today. Paul's quoting this about Jesus to make that connection that Jesus is the later David, the better David, the true son of God. And hence, all the promises that were given to David are ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. Look at verse 34. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. And now he quotes from Isaiah 55. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Of course, this is written after David. And it was written to God's people as a whole. But Paul sees that verse in Isaiah 55 as reflecting one who will fully inherit the sure blessings that were given to David. Promises like an eternal throne. An eternal throne for a guy who died. What's going to happen? How's that going to work? Well, verse 35, he quotes Psalm 16. He says also in another psalm, Paul preaches, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. David wrote this, and he wrote it about himself. But David did see corruption, and that's Paul's point. Look at verse 36 and 37 as he explains these verses of the Old Testament and how they land on Jesus. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. He died. And he was laid with his fathers. And he saw corruption, even though he was the one that wrote, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. It was temporarily true. God did protect him. And yet it wasn't ultimately true. Those were shoes too big for David to fill. It was there all along. David spoke better than he knew. So verse 37, here's Paul's point. That didn't refer to David ultimately, but he whom God raised up, he did not see corruption. He died, but was raised. In light of this, Paul then makes his appeal. Look at verse 38 and following. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's not just that he was the son of David. It's not just that he was raised from the dead. Those are all really special things. But personally important is this. He died for sins. He died for forgiveness. And this is preached to you. This forgiveness is preached to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Literally, the word isn't freed, but justified. 
declared righteous. Declared righteous on someone else's account. Declared righteous judicially, not because you are righteous in your own doing and strength, but because one was perfectly righteous who lived and died in our place to bring us to God. So believe, don't reject it. Look at verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets in Habakkuk 1.5 should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. One is telling it to you. Will you believe or will you scratch your head? Will you scoff and hence perish? Or will you believe that Christ is the fulfillment of God's plan? That Christ is the one who died and was raised? That in Christ, in Christ alone, there is the forgiveness of sins. Some Bible experts believe that Acts isn't very clear on the gospel or that it has a different gospel than, say, Paul's and Romans or Galatians or something. But no, it couldn't be any clearer than right here. And it, the book of Acts teaches a gospel just like we know and believe and Paul teaches elsewhere. So Martin Luther says that the book of Acts teaches us the whole of Christianity and the true and chief article of the Christian doctrine, which is we must all be justified alone by faith in Jesus Christ without any contribution from the law or help from our works. This is Luke's whole point in writing the book of Acts. Do you believe it? Have you embraced it? Do you hear this and scoff? Don't. Pray for faith. Pray to believe. Pray for God's help to understand and see. Christians, this is what we believe. This is what we have been saved by Jesus and God's promises fulfilled in his death and his resurrection our only hope, fulfilled according to the scriptures, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not only what we believe, it's also what we must proclaim. We must proclaim it here and abroad. Preach the centered word, the one that lands on Christ. Preach him and nothing else. Fourthly, we see in Acts 13 a mixed response to this gospel preached. A mixed response. We've already seen a mixed response in that earlier scene where the magician opposed and was struck blind and then the proconsul heard and believed. We see a similar division later on. It's reception and rejection at the same time, at the same scene, in the same city. You have revival and riot. It's amazing. That's often the case. Look at the reception of belief and salvation talked about in verse 42. As they went out of the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Really, they followed Jesus. But that's one way of putting it. They followed Paul and Barnabas and their way. 
And Paul and Barnabas spoke with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But there's also rejection and unbelief. See verse 45? When the Jews saw the crowds coming to hear the word the next week, they were filled with jealousy. We can't draw crowds like this for church. Who are these guys? So they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling them. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. We'll see rejection even more in verse 50 there. Jews in sight of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution and eventually they drove them out of the district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet and went to the next city. And there they preached the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. There's reception and rejection, a mixed response. This will always be the case. You see it again and again in the book of Acts. You see it again and again in church history. You see it again and again in Albuquerque. Some love Jesus and embrace him, and others oppose him, and oppose him vehemently and sometimes violently. There's a mixed response. The ratio Reception to rejection may differ from place to place, but, it's, but basically it's always a mixed response. The gospel of the Son is opposed by many, and it is power and salvation to many. There'll be a mixed response as go to North Africa. We pray that the door is open and God grants repentance and faith and eyes are opened and salvation is born and people's hearts and churches are formed and gathered. We don't know what the ratio will be. We simply know God has people there and there'll be opposition, a mixed response. But fifthly, there's a sure outcome, a sure outcome. A sure outcome has been clear just from Paul's overview of biblical history. As he moves from, Paul's, uh, from, from the promises of old to the fulfillment of David, ultimately to Jesus, to the one who was raised, you see that God is sovereign and the plan is sure. It's also implied in verse 47 that the, the, sure, the outcome is sure. You see there he quotes uh, from Isaiah 49, there he says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Not only was this a promise from Isaiah 49, but it's one that Luke 2 pins on Jesus as this light to the Gentiles. But now Paul applies it to the Christian message being preached by the disciples. Now light to the Gentiles is coming here in your hearing right now, this day. That's been the plan all along. It goes back to Isaiah. Well, it goes back all the way to Abraham. Well, it goes back all the way to Genesis 3.15 in the power of the seed of the woman who will defeat the curse and and Satan, the serpent. It's the plan all along. 
It's explicit, though, that this outcome is sure in verse 48. There it says, the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, happy that the, the gospel now goes to the Gentiles. But it says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I don't know if there's a clear passage in all of Scripture that shows that God is ahead of his word in human hearts to prepare them for the reception of that message, to be received because he's planned it to be so in the lives of some. Not all. We don't know why. He's appointed them to believe. So they believed. Don't flip it around. It doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. God has appointed some, and they believed when they heard the message. This is energizing, no doubt, for Paul. It's certainly energizing a few chapters later when the promise from God is, go into such and such a city, for I have many people in that city. Paul doesn't say, well, if you have many people in that city, I guess you've made up your mind. I'll just leave it to you. No, he goes and he preaches. And lo and behold, God had many people in that city. God has people in North Africa. People who haven't yet believed. People who haven't yet heard. But as many as are appointed to eternal life, will believe. That's in part why we go. It's a sure outcome. John saw and wrote down for us in the book of Revelation that in heaven one day there will be a multitude from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. It's a sure outcome. We can invest in this with great confidence. We can go with great confidence. There'll be a mixed response, but the outcome is sure. Acts 13 paints a picture for us, church. A dual commission, a complex mission, a centered message, a mixed response, and a sure outcome.